0: Hello, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. There comes a point in history when living witnesses to events pass on, and the stories are handed down to future generations for interpretation, study, and a judgment of sorts. That's the point that I'd like to discuss today. By 1840, the last of the revolutionary generation, the adults that lived through the American Revolution, had passed on and their descendants were grappling with what their legacy meant in a turbulent time of new challenges and increasing strains on the ties that bound the nation together. In anticipation of this episode, I've posted to the blog for this podcast a link to an article about photographs discovered of Revolutionary War veterans, as they date near to our time of interest. I thought they might be of interest to listeners of this episode. The blog for this podcast can be found at podcast all one word, dot Blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, Blueberry without the E's, dot com. While not a member of the revolutionary generation in his own right, William Henry Harrison had witnessed the transition to the government under the Constitution, and, due to his father's ties to the leaders of that time, had been able to personally interact with many of them. However, at 67, he was considered old by the standards of the time, So the majority of Americans in 1840 were twice removed from the Founders. The last signer of the Declaration, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, had died in 1832. James Madison, deemed the father of the Constitution, lived until 1836. However, some of their battles have been handed down to their children and grandchildren. Harrison and Whigs in general were attacked by Democrats during the 1840 election as being descended from the Federalist Party of the 1790s and 1800s. Indeed, as evidenced by a letter written by North Carolinian politician David S. Reed on September 28, 1840, the supposed demon of Federalism was personified by a previous president. Reed accused Harrison of having supported, quote, the black cockade federal administration of old John Adams, and described the election as a battle, quote, between William Henry Harrison and the factions of federalism on one side, and Martin Van Buren and the friends of the Constitution and equal rights on the other. Harrison would answer these charges by turning them back on his opponents and asserting on September tenth, 1840, that, quote, the government is now a practical monarchy. And made positive reference to, quote, your Washington or your Adams to a crowd in Dayton, Ohio, nearly a month later on October 1st. Though Adams' legacy may have been a questionable one, both parties sought a connection to Jefferson and saw themselves as legitimate heirs to the Jeffersonian legacy. Henry Clay, in a speech on the 26th of August, 1839, railed against, quote, the pretended democracy of those now in power and asserted that, quote, the Jeffersonian democracy counseled obedience to public opinion. However, Jackson was an admirer of Jefferson, who had toasted him in 1825 as, quote, Thomas Jefferson. His wisdom brought us back to true Republican principles. Let us go no more astray. As noted in episode one of the podcast, Harrison's career began with the likes of Jefferson and Madison, and he described them to Senator John J. Crittenden in 1839 as, quote, Those pure patriots by whom I was patronized and trusted. Back and forth Democrats and Whigs went, and there are many more examples than we have time to parse through today. Suffice it to say, both parties saw strength in connecting themselves to revered leaders of the past like Jefferson. In some ways, I'd argue that they felt that they drew legitimacy through the ideological link to this sage hero. However much of a champion of democracy Jefferson was seen as being, there was one even higher than him. One figure reigned at the head of the American pantheon at this point, even higher than he had during his own life, George Washington. Even a quarter century after his death, Henry Clay was describing Washington's quote, extraordinary person, who united a serenity of mind, a cool and collected wisdom, a cautious and deliberate judgment, a perfect command of the passions. Every American leader compared himself, and was compared to Washington, and found wanting. The damage of Parson Mason Weems had already been done. In his pamphlet, The Life of Washington, published in 1800, the same pamphlet that gave us the mythic cherry tree story. Weems imagined generations of American children asking, quote, What was it that raised Washington to his godlike height of glory? As Washington had already been accused of standing, quote, upon the boundary line of human from divine during his lifetime as he was assuming the presidency, it's no wonder that people in 1840 saw him as beyond reproach and that a biography coming out that year spoke of his, quote, transcendent greatness. Even as early as that time in our nation's history, we had Whigs and speeches, such as this one from the Whig Young Men's Convention in April 1840, attacking the Van Buren administration for being, quote, not in accordance with the genius, past history, or future destinies of a vast Republican empire. It has failed to engender or keep alive a veneration for the Constitution. Are to cherish an unalienable love for the Union. Then goes on to state that, quote, Political empirics have driven from their moorings the once fast-anchored axioms of the Constitution, a Constitution to which Washington had affixed his seal and given verity by experience. This prediction of a vast Republican empire is interesting enough in what it reveals about the sprouts of Manifest Destiny that were beginning to break through the surface. But we also have this final portion which tells us something of how the citizens of 1840 viewed their past. Quote, a Constitution to which Washington had affixed his seal, by the grace of God or by the grace of George Washington in reading some works even from Washington's time, one wonders whether some authors thought that they were one and the same. However, when necessary, Washington is brought back down to earth to serve as a parable for how leaders and gentlemen should function. When speaking about Washington's retirement from the army, Samuel George Arnold, in his 1840 biography of the general, remarks that, quote, the happiness of the good man does not depend on the power which he wields, or the respect which he commands. It is the inmate of his bosom, and thrives as well in the retirement of a cottage as in the splendor of a palace. Small wonder that few, if any, of Arnold's contemporaries felt themselves capable of living up to Washington's example. Even the earthly general, in their understanding, was not tempted by either power or fame. This mythic Washington was truly too good for this world. He was also an oversimplified caricature of the real man. Arnold, in his reflection on Washington's, quote, Christian character, portrays one of the greatest changes since the revolutionary generation. After listing outward acts of the general that he interpreted as Christian, Arnold notes, quote, "...it is not in these outward forms merely that we would trace the Christian character of Washington, but in the acts of his long and useful life, marked throughout, with the most humble dependence on the supreme being in all times of trial and the deepest gratitude in seasons of mercy." This examination of Washington happened after the Second Great Awakening, a religious revival in the early part of the century. It also happened after the Panic of 1837. Both brought about major shake-ups and rethinks in America's social life and outlooks, and, as noted by Richard Carwardine in his essay, Evangelicals, Whigs, and the Election of William Henry Harrison, the public in 1840 was expressing both concerns about, quote, the public sins of private citizens, and the increasing disrespect for Protestant Christianity in the activities of government and politicians. Indeed, Edward Stearns, in an essay in the Quarterly Christian Spectator in 1838, attacks the idea of separation of church and state by writing, and please bear with me, this is a lengthy quote, but an important one. Quote, We do not mean to assert that our rulers are irreligious men, but that the course of things and the conduct of our government is such. Our rulers are considered the mere creatures and servants of the people, bound by the will of the people, and amenable to them. There is scarcely another government on earth in which there is so little recognition of God as our own. We refer to the general disregard of religious principle in the selection of candidates for civil offices, a disregard which clearly appears among all parties throughout the land. No matter whether the candidate be an atheist or a Christian, whether he honor the Sabbath or desecrate it, whether he be a man of conscience or a mere man of honor, on these subjects, no questions are asked, but is he a man of the people? Will he be obedient to their wills? Will he be subservient to their ends? Or in plain terms, will he be the tool of his party? He is not to be a minister of God, to do the will of God, or the public good. This cuts to the essence of American democracy as defined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. While they differed on how direct or indirect the influence should be or how independently public servants should act, the nature of the government created by the Constitution was such that the government's power and authority emanated from the public, and thus public servants were ultimately subject to the public will. However narrowly or broad, various founders defined the public. The founding generation saw the dangers of trying to link the state to religion, as ultimately one sect would have to be chosen over the others, and all others would feel excluded and persecuted. Two generations removed, though, in a time of uncertainty and new challenges, and we have questioning of the fundamentals of our system of government and the principles on which our society was founded. As a citizen of the United States in 2016, I know this sounds familiar to me. In the modern era, we have more readily available access to a wider range of primary sources from the revolutionary generation, and can see that, in fact, that generation was not overtly religious. For the most part, when they did touch upon issues of the divine publicly, it was typically with references to the creator or the maker as two common examples. Religious freedom was a cornerstone of political ideologies across the new nation, though the forms this freedom would take would differ in various regions. Washington himself has been noted by one biographer as being, quote, never a deeply religious man, at least in the traditional Christian sense of the term, with his beliefs described as viewing, quote, God as a distant, impersonal force, the presumed wellspring for what he called destiny or providence. Indeed, just as a basic test, in a search of works in which Washington was the author in the National Archives Founders Online database, out of a total of 31,241 Washington documents in the collection, I turned up only 231 spanning his entire lifetime that contained the word God, with a number of them being private papers that the public would not have access to at the time of his public service. Likewise, Jefferson, during his lifetime, wrote to John Adams about, quote, one of our fan-coloring biographers, who had inquired about his religion and rumors of a change in his religious beliefs. Jefferson went on to tell Adams that, quote, My answer was, say nothing of my religion. It is known to my God and myself alone. Its evidence before the world is to be sought in my life. If that has been honest and dutiful to society, the religion which has regulated it cannot be a bad one. Despite being chronologically closer, it seems that the antebellum generation did not as clearly understand that, and instead reimagined, or were led to imagine, that figures like Washington expressed their, quote, Christian character in a public sense, when in fact religious belief was viewed as more of a private affair. It should be noted that, in the discussion in 1840 of that generation that we now call the Founders, there is little to no mention of women and African Americans, while Native Americans fell into one of two camps, the noble savage or the vicious enemy. Ironically, it was through a woman that Washington officials still had a link to that first generation. Dolly Madison, the wife of the late President James Madison, was still alive in Washington D.C. and made her rounds in the social circles of the time. The widow Madison was nearly two decades younger than her husband, having been born in 1768, and was able to share with the new generation of leaders tales of the early days of the Republic and first-hand accounts of those much-admired greats. Likewise, Eliza Hamilton, the widow of the long-deceased Alexander Hamilton, was still alive and working to preserve her husband's legacy, as well as further her family's ambitions. In her letter on the 3rd of April, 1841, to the newly installed Secretary of the Treasury, Thomas Ewing, asking for a position for her son-in-law, she reminds Ewing that, quote, My husband was your predecessor in office, asserting the tone of authority to make the recommendation, and continues further on to state, quote, It is thus in your person to confer on me a personal benefit by an increase of income through my son-in-law even one who was born in the midst of the revolution was not above name-dropping and guilting to get her way in the nouveau spoil system of the antebellum period arnold began his biography of washington with the words quote, "greatness is in many respects the creature of circumstances" certainly the circumstances faced by the revolutionary generation were unique and in turn created great characters however as often happens even in the present day Previous great generations and leaders are viewed through rose-colored lenses, causing us to miss some of the greatest lessons that history holds for us, namely the failures and shortcomings of the past. Indeed, in their reverence of the past, the people in 1840 neglected to see one of the greatest faults in that the people of the early republic were far from united. This plague of factionalism was one of the main concerns of founding leaders, including Washington and Monroe, And this lack of examination of this issue caused the people of 1840 to fall prey to the same disease which would, in 20 years' time, rip the nation asunder. This seems a good time to draw this episode to a close, and to invite you to join me for the next episode, which I'm calling, It's My Party, and I'll Sing If I Want To, Party Politics in 1840. As always, please feel free to send your thoughts questions, and suggestions to HarrisonPodcast at gmail.com. Also, check out the blog at com for sources for this episode and additional information. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we are now on iTunes, so please take a moment to go there and rate the program. More good ratings means the program goes up higher on the list in iTunes, hopefully allowing more to join on our journey of learning about this pivotal yet underexplored part of American history. Thanks so much for listening.